creating a software company has never been easier. Software engineers are increasingly seeing entrepreneurship as a viable career path, but the path to becoming an independent software developer is not always clear. Most engineers spend some of their career working at a software company. Even an engineer who intends to build a company on their own someday can thrive within the right environment. Lior Confi is a software engineer and the founder of Tikal, a company that he started around the height of the dot-com bubble in 1999. Lior's original vision for the company was to build a product around managing knowledge and people within a company. When the dot-com bubble burst in the year 2000, it became much harder to run a product-focused business. Companies were not buying lots of experimental software, and investors were not aggressively funding new software companies. After the market collapsed, Lior shifted Tikal from a product-focused company into consulting, in order to have a more reliable income stream. Today, Tikal is a successful software consultancy based in Israel and the Bay Area. Lior has built this business over the last 20 years, and in today's episode, he describes the engineers within Tikal as free radical software developers, independent people who want to learn about new technologies and build experience interacting with clients. Lior joins the show to talk about his 20-year journey building Tikal and the differences between engineers in the Bay Area and those in Israel. Lior also hosted the Full Stack Tech Radar Day in Tel Aviv, which was a great conference that I attended, and I hope to perhaps attend next year. I encourage anybody who is in Israel or who wants an excuse to travel to Israel to check out that conference because it was a great multifaceted array of different subjects and very technical content. Lior Confi, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Yes, you and I have gotten acquainted since you invited me to your conference, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I want to start off by talking about Israel, because you are a software developer, well, you run a software development consultancy in Israel, and I want to better understand how Israeli software developers operate. How do Israeli developers differ from the United States developers? I think it's uh, related to most of us that uh, we grew up uh, in an army sense of uh, authority. So basically most of Israelis are working uh, on a small teams. They are improvised a lot. They like uh, to take... Uh, initiatives, they love challenge, and sometimes they break the rules. What kinds of startups get started in Israel? It depends. At the start of Israel, one of the most known startups that started in around the 1900 and 1990, it's Checkpoint, as you know, and it was a part of the experience, experience in the army and the security sector is what it used to be. Other than that, later on, if you heard about ICQ, which was a messenger, so on the internet boom, a lot of startups used uh, to do communication or messengers. And let's say after the dot-com boom, a lot of startups start to go to the enterprise and you can find either security solutions 
or uh, software enterprises. And if I uh, fast forward today, I think that we can find um, healthcare, a lot of healthcare, security is big, a big sector, uh, developer tools is a new emerged uh, sector in Israel. Developer tools is the thing that I have seen the most. There's a bunch of companies that have created developer tools in Israel. Is there something about the Israeli culture that leads to the creation of developer tools companies? I think that uh, most of us are in technology background, and the first things that we see is ourselves as a users. And we are less uh, business-oriented or marketing-oriented. So we see ourselves as a user. So as you start and working on a startup, you try to find tools which will help you. And later on, you try to boost it or um, use it uh, as a product. And I think it's also related to the open source uh, culture. We like to use open source and we like to publish it. And suddenly this is sees us developers as opportunity i remember on uh, 2000 when i tried to raise some money around open source developer tools most of them said that uh, you should go to the enterprise market but now we see a very let's say call it a bloom of a uh, developer tools well it's funny that these used to be two separate ideas the idea that you're selling to developers versus you're selling to the enterprise. Now it's the same thing. Now you sell to the enterprise by selling to the developers. Right. This is the the grassroots approach. It's a kind of a, the big win of open source. You know, it used to be top-down marketing, meaning you try to persuade the manager. And after persuading the manager, you needed to train the developers to use it. Now... You spread your words, you put your product in the internet, and uh, they are coming. And they are talking inside the organization and asking the manager to use the tool. So it's kind of a vice versa approach. You started Tikal, your company, 20 years ago. What was your original vision for the company? It's a nice thing that you put it. I'm, I'm just finishing uh, a presentation to the only all of employees about uh, the story of Tikal. Basically, it was a spin-off from a consultancy company, which was called Tikal Software. And we kind of caught in the startup boom, and we tried to create a startup. And it was on knowledge management uh, area. We had an idea, which called it Ksphere. It was kind of a knowledge messenger. It was trying to find people instead of documents inside the inside the enterprise so we created a poc and we managed to raise one million dollar and we started developing and while developing we decided to go with what was uh, the most common uh, uh, software stack at the time which was oracle sun solaris and there was a big gap between the the brochures of the marketing and the actual releases. So we found a lot of bugs in the product. It was the Oracle application server. It was very edgy and we didn't we didn't be able to continue. 
So we decided to go open source with JBoss, which was, it didn't have any release. It was releasing, uh, I, I remember the first time that I used it, it was a release of uh, 30th of March. And then we, we used Linux and we started to use Apache, Apache Ant, and all that's all kind of libraries. And it's kind of uh, related to our goals because it was, uh, you know, we liked uh, to contribute to it. We like to use it. We like to report to the developers that they are using it. So after using it for, uh, let's say, half a year, uh, the 2001, uh, 9-11 came and all the startup were uh, kind of a freeze. So instead of closing the company, I said, this is an opportunity. Let's try to sell the infrastructure that we develop in-house as a consultancy to the Israeli R&D market, because most of them didn't have budget at the time. So we started uh, to create uh, integration between several tools. Uh, we had a build system. We had an issue tracker. We had a version control. We also have an IDE, a distro of Eclipse. So we started to approach R&D manager and um, try to sell them and say, instead of using J, uh, J Builder Boland or whatever, IntelliJ, why not start using open source tools? And the only thing that we will help you is to feel trust. So that's how we started and spin off the company from uh, a product company to a consultancy or professional service company. It sounds like there was this issue with closed source software, specifically, at least with with uh, the Oracle application server that you were using, where you would try to deploy your application to the software, and you would encounter a bug that would reduce your ability to go to market or release reduce your ability to actually deploy, and then you would be stuck. You couldn't go into the code and like solve the problem yourself or like find it. Cause it's like, you just get sent a binary, right? They're giving you a binary. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if your code throws an exception, you can't really look into it. No, I mean, I've never done this. I've never had an issue where I like use a piece of software and then there's an issue with the, the software and I go and fix the bug. But I can imagine that this at the core of it, this is one of the issues with closed source software is people can't fix it themselves. Yeah, I have a story around it while using the software. Although we used all the open source stack, we stayed with Oracle Text, which was kind of uh, Elasticsearch at the time. And we had a demo at uh, Intel Sacramento where we presented the product. And while presenting the product, we encountered a bug in Oracle Text. And I tried all their support after, you know, between two days, I had said, let's try uh, solve it uh, and go to the class and try to, uh, you know, to help and to make them see that it's working. And I, I, you know, the support guy didn't know the product. So I needed to explain him, and it was a very long cycle. At the end, when I arrived to Israel, back to Israel, that's the only way that the, I got some, you know, reply to my mail at the time. So it's kind of, uh, you know, you have a short life, short cycle, you're working explicitly with the developers. You know, when I had a bug in, in JBoss, I was opening an issue and I could chat around the issue with the developer, with the core developer. 
at that time, I was uh, familiar with them. I was chatting with them. Tell me about the dot-com boom and bust from your point of view. It's kind of, uh, most of us in Israel are relating it to the 9-11 issue, which, you know, the uh, terror attack. And it's uh, kind of, uh, Israel was, uh, there was a lot of uh, VCs in Israel, but they were mostly funded from uh, U.S. So when the U.S. got into this big security issue and the big, big terror attack, it's kind of uh, the flow of money was stopping. So it's kind of got us, everyone, into a, some kind of a freeze. And a lot of companies were um, closed. And it's, it's kind of, you can see it on the flip side, because before that, you would see that uh, every two young people that got out of the army and had an idea, you know, the VCs were spreading money on them and they didn't know how to manage things. So they started to buy hardware. You know, there was a lot of hardware uh, garage sales at the time, at the end, after the, the bust. So it's kind of from an inexperienced market, you started to to get into a more, how would call it, more uh, aligned or more more, uh, rational market. But what about you personally? I mean, you were a business person around this time, right? I mean, you, you, the, if I get the timeline right, about 20 years ago, that was 1999. Yeah. This is uh, when the market crashed, right? Yeah. I was uh, a business and an, a technology guy. So basically, I was uh, visiting the U.S. for several times and tried uh, to secure some POCs. So I had a, a potential POC at Intel and I had some- This is before the bust? Yeah, before the bust. And I had some potential leads in Israel too. And, you know, while, you know, the, at that time, this, this, the enterprise life cycle was very, a sales cycle was very long. So you kind, kind of uh, try to persuade the investors that to believe that you're going to secure some deals. But at the end, if I found myself without, without money at the end. So basically... I needed to change the approach and try to go on a self-sustained business model. That's why I used the professional service uh, business model. You basically shifted to becoming a consultancy because in the 90s or when the when the bust came, you had these potential clients that might have bought your software otherwise, but because the market was getting so cold, you needed to shift to a consulting model to build a business more consistently, to to have a, a sustainable flow of, of work because people are always willing to pay for consulting. Right, you know, but basically when there is a cold market, sometimes you go external because you, you're kind of seeking for elastic, meaning you don't uh, hire new employees yet because you are not sure that you'll be able to uh, hold them for a long time. So consultancy, sometimes it's a very short-term option. And we were unique because we were shouting or focusing on open source. So instead of asking for R&D manager to do capital, meaning invest in tools, he would invest in, in service. So it's kind of uh, was a win-win situation because we came with 
predefined a suite of tools that you used and he could get the boost. And instead of uh, trusting in commercial com- uh, closed source companies, he started to trust us as a evangelist of open source. The idea of a software consultancy is almost too abstract. It's almost too broad because there is Accenture, which is a arguably a software consultancy where you hire a bunch of engineers from Accenture and they give you Accenture engineers and you can scale up your team that way. But then there's all these other models. There's, there's ThoughtWorks, there's small consultancies you can find online. And then more recently, you have this trend where companies that are building a product, oftentimes an open source product, build what is essentially a consulting arm. So a company like Pivotal, for example, where they have a set of software solutions, Cloud Foundry, Green Plum, Pivotal Cloud or whatever. I mean, they have a bunch of different things, but then they also will parachute in a bunch of consultants that'll help you deploy these solutions and maintain them. And this like is even like elastic company like Elastic, you know, like you need consulting help to make the best use of Elasticsearch. And many people who are listening to this may wonder like why, why how would I need help with why would I need help with Elasticsearch? I just want to buy a search engine, you know, internal search tool. But if you think about a gigantic enterprise, like it's a question of how do I index my data? How do I do permissioning? How do I do machine learning to build an even better indexing system? There's a whole lot of complex problems, and you probably don't have in-house solution, in-house knowledge to help you with those problems. So anyway, I'm just trying to paint a picture for the fact that the software consultancy is such an abstract concept, and I want to get your vision because you started as a product company you basically shifted to consulting because you were in a cold market and then your consulting business took off and here you are 20 years later so what is your current vision for tcall okay let's start with your original question about you know what's the business model for doing it we explored several business models until we used our current uh, business model but if we'll take a, a wider look in professional service, you either have three types of service types or, or, or vision. Either you are efficient, meaning that uh, it's better to take you because you are more, more efficient from your client. The second option is that you are experienced, meaning you already done that and he is looking for your experience. And at the end, you can find it that yeah, you're kind of a brain surgeon, an expert, meaning that you need someone specific to solve a very hot problem. So as a consultancy, first, uh, first decision that you need to take, where do you focus? And at Tikal, we decided to focus on tier two and three, meaning we don't do efficient work. We don't try to do code monkeys, QA, or you know, just calling us because we are more efficient or more uh, cheaper, or we, you know, we are not using the offshore approach or whatever meaning that we would like to bring value to our clients that they can get it. So we are approaching the market with experience and expertise uh, auction. Second thing is how do you penetrate the market? So basically what we tried at the start is the using the open source strategy and create some kind of integration between open source tools and try to sell subscription on top of that. 
and we had some success around it, meaning we, dis- uh, we were able to sell a bunch of tools similar, I don't know if you're familiar with Maven or other, other tools, and we sold subscription model uh, to the R&D managers. But it kind of caught us in a situation that it was, wasn't enough sustainable. So we needed to work on a dual approach, meaning take some consultancy and try from the consultancy to build the product or the suite of product, which was, sell, was sold as a subscription model. So it's kind of having a dual uh, vision inside your company. And it's very hard to align both parties of the companies because the people that are doing general consulting, see, doesn't feel aligned with the general vision to create a a suite of tools. So around 2008, I decided to focus only on expertise or expert. And that's why we changed the vision from open source, which was already familiar with, to the full stack vision, meaning we'll give you a, a full cycle services around development and we'll have a lot of expertise and experience around them. So we'll, you, you will use us to boost your team, to help you uh, boost your knowledge inside your organization. So basically, we decided to stop developing uh, tools and only you know, articulate our professional knowledge. Was that a hard decision for you? So as somebody, like I can, you know, just from talking to you, I know you are interested in building products. You have ideas for products. And, you know, as software engineers, as entrepreneurs, we want to bring our creativity into the world. We want to make these products. We want to make these inventions that are going to make the world operate more efficiently. As you're doing consulting, I'm sure you see places all the time where you're like, wow, we could just build a tool that would solve that problem. And I bet a hundred other companies are having that problem too. But the distraction and the diversion, diversion that that would create to, to do two things at once, just, you know, it's, it's, it can be really tough. So was it hard to cut off that part of yourself or at least that part of your business, at least for now, and go straight down the road of consulting? Yeah, it was hard because once in a while I'm trying to, two years ago, I tried to open some kind of a lab with someone that is a very entrepreneur and we, we, we uh, tried to develop some tools and, uh, you know, something like Git uh, coin, if you remember a thing like that, we call it code. Sure, yeah. Yeah, code monkey, we call it. So basically, it's kind of uh, sometimes I find myself in asking why not uh, gather all the information, gather all the macro perspective that I have and develop something. But I, I, on the other hand, I'm, I'm very truly believe in focus in a company and, and in a specific vision. So I believe that uh, what our vision is to be a home for a free radical developers, meaning to be a home for technologists. So... It's kind of something that's take us away from uh, this vision. So I, I only explore it on a personal basis, but I don't uh, align it into the company. That idea of the free radical software developer, you and I have talked about that a little bit because, as you know, I, I kind of have this view that 
there are a lot of forces that are pushing developers towards a commodification. That's what I call it. You know, just kind of a, I'm a React JS developer and I charge a hundred dollars an hour, or I am an entry level React JS developer. There's these labels, right? These labels that we ascribe ourselves basically because we have been taught to think that way. I'm a DevOps engineer. I'm a database consultant. And what resonates with me about what you're doing is the the idea of the free radical is the idea that we're capable of of migrating from one domain to another. You can take your skills in React.js and almost all of those skills will map in some way or another to the world of data infrastructure. You want to go into data infrastructure and data engineering? You know, you are a couple weekends of studying away from making that transition. That's the reality, you know, in today's world. And, and you know, so I think your perspective on the free radical, by kind of ca- capturing your, your perspective, or ha- how would you define your, your, your free radical software okay. idea? I think that the first thing that we need to explore is what is the workplace for us today? Because if you will take my parents, for them, workplace was something that uh, gave them honor and living. So if they have a living and honor, they will stay for a long time uh, there. When I got into uh, workplaces, I tried to succeed, meaning it's a kind of a platform for success. So that's why I started, you know, the, most of the Israeli high tech was uh, emerging on that area. After, after uh, the, the next generation said to the market, it's not enough to succeed. I would like to put my values into the companies, meaning I, w- I, w- I won't go with companies which are doing evil to the world or gambling, whatever my values are. And if I'm looking at my son, which is a YouTuber with uh, 3,000 subscribers, he, he says to me, uh, I'm a workplace. I, as, as you are doing, I'm, uh, I'm creative, I'm creating content, I'm adding it, I market it, I negotiate with the advertisers. So I'm a kind of a solo. So this shift in mindset, meaning that most of our needs are changing. But on the other hand, most of the workplaces that we know still thinks on the old days. They are trying to persuade we that you are kind of part of them that it's better for you to be in that group, that you're going to conquer some kind of a, an objective together. But if you are a developer which is, has passionate for technology, you sometimes find yourself in a kind of non-challenge area inside the company. So if you were speaking about it with your managers, they say to you, why, why not you will develop or your personal roadmap will be a manager? But you say that I like hands-on. I like to develop. So you're getting in some kind of a plateau in the technology and you're asking yourself what to do. So the first time, at the first acquaintance, you are going and you're trying to find another challenge. And suddenly after experiencing the same experience, you're asking yourself, okay, it's not stable. What will do with that? You know, you already have the enough knowledge. You're already experienced. So you can go to the big companies so you are exchanging from the mountain or the objective concursion, you're going to some kind of a cave or, you know, second world cave because when a company, whatever big it is, it's 
it's already solved the problem. It's already have a market. So you're kind of getting into their specific niche. And again, the, the, the tech challenge is, uh, you know, you, you don't beat them. So it's kind of, you're looking into their workplace and I said, okay, what I will do. So you either go and be in some kind of free, freelancer or you can do some job hopping or you can be part of a community. And that's what Tikal is offering for these developers because they are, they are solos. They can manage along. They can be freelancers. But if they like to be part of community, which share the same values and explain, explores and share a lot of ideas, it's kind of, uh, you know, more appealing. So that's what Tikal is trying to be. So these engineers that come and join Tikal, do you encourage them to work on side projects or to like start their own company eventually? Or what are their long-term visions? Yeah. Everyone in Tikal has a roadmap. And the roadmap is his personal development objective for this, the annual uh, personal objective. And he sits with uh, his leader and they explore together what will be his next moves or next learning uh, items or whatever he would like or his uh, personal soft skill development. And they are uh, creating objective per quarter and together uh, the leaders is helping him to meet his objective as part of our business goals. So basically our vision is constructed on a small steps, which we call roadmaps. And at the end, we believe that each one of us can be a tech lead. That's what we are trying to make our people. So on one hand, they're creating a recognition and uh, for themselves. On the other hand, if they are part of Tikal, they're creating recognition for Tikal. Understood. So have you ever read this book, The Alliance by Reid Hoffman? No, no. No, sorry. <laughs> There's a really good book called the the Alliance. So Reid Hoffman, the the founder of LinkedIn, and the Alliance is about how a manager can establish a relationship with an employee that meets the employee's long term goals. So oftentimes, you know, in in modern day software employment, engineers are employed at a company for 18 to 24 months, typically, you know, in many cases, sometimes longer. But, you know, in many cases, these engineers, they have a longer term vision for themselves, whether it's like starting a business, or, you know, becoming a, a chef or something like engineers are creative people, they have long term visions for how they want to turn that creativity into something that satisfies them. To what degree do you try to help work with your employees for them to fulfill their long-term vision for themselves that's agnostic of their time at T-Call? Basically, what we hire is people that are passionate about technology. So what's their long-term vision, from my point of view, is to be relevant in the market, to be in the radar, meaning all the time to have a market value. You know, to be the most experienced, the most rock star developer, to, to be a tech lead. So basically, if someone need, will, would like to grow to be an entrepreneur, probably he will, he will uh, leave Tikal and uh, try to be an entrepreneur. But most of the people that stay in Tikal 
are people that believe in the developer mindset, meaning I would like to stay a developer, a relevant developer, because I love and I, I love to code, but I would like to be st- I would like to be updated, relevant, and 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 not um, stay behind the market because all the time I have a market value, which is the top tier. We met in person at this conference that you invited me to, the Full Stack Tech Radar Day. I enjoyed this conference because it had a lot of different elements that were modern, and I say when I say modern, I mean not kind of trapped in the the paradigms of two years ago and and you know two years ago may may seem like a, a short amount of time but two years ago is quite a long amount of time in the world of software engineering describe to me the the biggest changes the recent changes to software engineering that you wanted to capture in your conference okay what we tried to do in the conference is to bring to the table uh, our point of view of using of working with a lot of clients and try to bring up some kind of visualization of what we think are technologies that you need to start using technologies or topics technology topics that you would like to keep using and and uh, technology topics that you would like to stop using meaning that if you using them probably you have a technical depth so we used the approach of the tech radar which is a kind of uh, thing that we use from ThoughtWorks that has the tech radar, but we modified it a little bit to our uh, need using their open source uh, license. And what we, we try to achieve in this conference is to put on the table trends that we see. And the first thing that we saw, which is also we, we spoke about it, is that we see evolution in the term of full stack, meaning you the original uh, term of full stack was around the software layers, meaning that you can develop in the front end and the back end, for instance. But today you see that a true back end developer needs to know uh, Kubernetes or Docker, whatever. So you kind of get into the dev world also. So it's kind of changing to what we call full cycle developer. Or you, I know that you, uh, we also invited Greg. Barrel from uh, Netflix, which is uh, using this approach inside his Edge uh, team. So basically, a developer needs to know all the development lifecycle and to be some kind of a, be able to be executor in all this uh, de- uh, lifecycle of development. The other trend that we saw is a kind of a, there is a lot of data and a lot of data pipelines, and you you start to see that you kind of need an orchestrator. So what we saw as a merge is the Airflow a kind of, or Luigi kind of tools that's help, you know, if you are a data engineers, you kind of need to correlate and create dependencies between pipelines. So Airflow and uh, likewise tools helping you to, to achieve that. Other than that, it was a, around security, meaning security today is going to be at the first. It's not, you know, you're, you're not taking the security and doing a penetration test. You need to create a security culture, which is related to DevSecOps uh, role, meaning at the start of the company, uh, at start of the development, you need to know how to keep secrets, how to be sure that no one will get them, how to write secure code, all those kind of practical 
techniques needs to be injected inside to, to the start of the development cycle. Were there any trends that came to mind during the conference that made you think like maybe we should have included this trend or that trend or maybe we should have you know resituated how we phrase this sort of thing was there any way you would refactor the conference in retrospect that's a good question i didn't think about it yet but let me do it uh, real time first of all the the conference uh, a lot of people gave us very good feedback about the content so I basically believe that we, you know, kind of uh, caught their attention. But looking back, I think that the automotive, all the things that's around things, meaning uh, uh, doing uh, assembly lines with a lot of sensors and collecting all the data and to create an IoT or edge computing, I think that we didn't cover it uh, enough. And that's something that needs to be covered more recent. Is that a trend that is actually making its way into implementation? Or are people just kind of talking about that? To what degree is that? are these data pipelines around real-time streaming data from automobiles or from IoT devices? To what degree is this a reality? Uh, let's see. We had some uh, pilot project with a, an automotive uh, company. Which was trying to, which tried to help them to create a POC, which uh, predict an accident between two cars. So it's kind of a POC that we uh, used machine learning and GPS tracking, and kind of uh, send alert to the car driver that it's to be careful when something happened. So that's kind of you know you can see it on the POC side. On the other hand, we have a client that has a business around collecting a lot of sensors around assembly lines inside uh, big factories and, and trying to bring a dashboard and trying to be, uh, bring efficiency indicators to them to help them you know, create more efficiency to produce their product more efficient. So I, I find it as a kind of emerged in, in the recent, uh, from my point of view, from, from the startup that I meet. What else have you learned in the last, let's say, 12 months when you're working with these enterprises that engage with your consultancy? Uh, what are some, some newer changes that you're seeing in, in the clients, and how are those, you know, those, those experiences, those consulting engagements reflected in how you, you crafted the content from the conference? Okay, first of all, I think that we are aligned around it. Kubernetes is uh, the standard factor for orchestration. So basically from uh, Docker and Docker Swarm, which were the first offering around orchestration, you see that Kubernetes uh, is the, the standard de facto. Most of uh, the companies are working with Kubernetes either as a managed service or on-prem. So you see a lot of ecosystem around Kubernetes and it's also extending Kubernetes, meaning uh, the Go language was coding, and you see a lot of people from the DevOps world are, are using and extending Kubernetes using Go. Another emerged thing that is DevOps is the SRE role, meaning at the time most of DevOps were most kind of uh, ops guys or developers that working aside 
the infrastructure or using, the, you know, creating pipelines or DevOps pipelines, CI, CDs pipelines. But now you see that there is because you are using a platform like Kubernetes, you need a lot of system services. So you need a developer, a true backend developer, which is around the infrastructure. So a lot of uh, companies are starting to define in Israel the SRE role, which is a developer with DevOps mindset, but is developing engineering uh, tasks. Are there any other downstream effects of Kubernetes that you've seen among enterprises that you deal with? Yeah, sometimes you, you know, because most of the people are using Kubernetes, it's not all the time the right tool for the right job. So you kind of uh, see a very small problem and someone is taking, you know, have a big hammer and using Kubernetes and a hammer to work with it. But at the end, it's very small, small uh, setup, which you can use Docker Compose or even, you know, a Docker Swarm. So sometimes you see that it's overusing the technology or a kind of a trying to think big before they're, you know, they're not agile enough, meaning I will start with Docker Swarm and, and go ahead to Kubernetes when I need it. So sometimes when you are seeing a standard, sometimes people are overusing it for all kinds of purposes because it's safe to use it or because, you know, they would like to be they are passionate about using it. To wrap up, I'd like to get your perspective on the global nature of software engineering. So I attended your conference, the Full Stack Tech Radar Day in Tel Aviv, and then I went to KubeCon j- directly from Tel Aviv. I went to Spain, and it's remarkable how much of a unifying force software engineering can be because it's this common ground that we can all come to and, and it seems like you know the, the the software that's used in Tel Aviv is very similar to the software that's used in San Francisco which is very similar to the software that's used in Europe and we can all come to the table and we can have very impartial conversations around the best practices how has the global the global market for for software engineering. You know, since you're somebody who's who's been traveling between San Francisco and Tel Aviv for for many many years, what's the state of of software engineering globalism? Is it is it any different than it was 20 years ago, or, or what are the dramatic shifts you're noticing? I think there is a common problem around all the decades is a talent shortage. Meaning, at the end you find yourself as a software product, whatever, that you are f- very hard to hire developer because they are, uh, you need talent developer, you need experienced developers. And there is a lot of programs that tries to get into uh, accelerating the talent uh, shortage. But at the end, basically, for instance, in Silicon Valley, you see that there is, there is a talent shortage around job offering, meaning the big companies are doing some kind of... Uh, I don't know how to call it, but that they are offering a very big money for a lot of uh, talented engineers and uh, other startups find themselves that they can't compete with it. So the talent shortage brings to the table the ability because there is standard, because there is a lot of using open source tool, it's open uh, the, the idea of remote work, meaning not to work on efficient way, uh, uh, to work as a distributed team. 
So basically what I see that we are able to offer our services to the, to the Silicon Valley and help them work with Israel, with Israeli talent, because they can't hire the, it in, in, you know, in Silicon Valley because they, are, they have shorted. So it's kind of, you know, how it was, I forgot, uh, the word is, uh, forgot is the article, uh, Thomas from the New York Times, uh, the word is flat, right? I forgot, uh, never mind, but uh, um, what, what? Yeah, I, I, know, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, uh, forgot his name somehow. But um, basically what you see is that if you are a software uh, manager or a software businessman needs to find talent, you now can look at in Europe, in Israel, all around the world, and uh, you, you can work on a distributed team model. And it brings you to the table the global talent. So you can compete on other ways. So basically, most of the developers are looking for flexibility. They don't like to commute, you know, commute around. I had a conversation today with someone that uh, came to our office and he said that he, he's uh, one hour and a half driving to work. So even Google is uh, seeing it and they are opening offices around Sunnyville, you know, to, to help people commute uh, le- less. So basically, I think that two f- forces, one that there is a standard, as you said, you know, you could talk to Tel Aviv on Kubernetes and you can talk in Spain on KubeCon and you can share the same ideas. On the other hand, the world is becoming flat, meaning you can approach each one and you can assemble teams using the communication tools, the distributed tools together uh, to create a software development team. It is quite beautiful. I am really enjoying remote work. I've collaborated with developers in four or five different countries at least, and uh, it's just very fun. I I really like the cross-cultural melting pot that online software development is becoming. Yeah, the only thing I would like to add that the most challenging issue today with software developers is soft skills, meaning because of what you said, the melting of cultures, you need to uh, develop your soft skill more uh, frequent. So you can't stay with the computer. You need to communicate a lot. Completely agree. And, uh, you know, soft skills as they apply to Slack messages and video calls and, you know, email responsiveness, these things are not straightforward and they take some some experience. So, you know, people will, will have to develop these in the coming years. Lior, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for putting on an excellent conference and inviting me. I endorse the full stack tech radar day. At least I can endorse the comp- the the first one. Uh, it was great. I had a great time at your conference, and I hope that uh, you know this episode illuminates the conference for for more other people. Because certainly, if you're looking for an excuse to go to Tel Aviv, which is a beautiful city, your conference is a is a great one. Great. Thank you for hosting me. And uh, as I said to you uh, on the conference, you are my favorite podcaster. So it's plenty. It's great okay. to be here. <laughs> Thank you, Liar. Wow.